This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that hopes to be right at this very instant, recovering from Christmas and Boxing Day in front of the cricket. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. Merry Christmas. Well, belated, well, both in advance and a belated Merry Christmas, mate. We hopefully will see this podcast hit the airwaves on the 27th of December, just after Boxing Day. But of course, we are pre-recording this because you're on the other side of the world. So I guess I'm wishing you a pre and post Merry Christmas. Hopefully it was a good one. Yeah, well, same for you. Uh, pre Thank and you, post Merry Christmas and, you know, an advanced New Year, I guess. Well, that's exactly right. And to our listeners, this is the... This is the lull between Christmas and New Year, the time that is best spent watching the cricket, frankly, and uh, as I said, eating some of those Christmas leftovers. If you have some in the fridge, don't let the ham go off. Make sure you've eaten it and you're having a, you're having a, a lovely Christmas break. And to our listeners, we hope you had a very Merry Christmas as well and we hope you're gearing up for the New Year. We do have a special New Year's episode next week, so we'll, we'll keep people in suspense for that one. But in the meantime, mate, because we're doing this in advance and because despite our forecasting abilities despite the wonderful crystal balls we have at our disclosure our disposal not our disclosure our disposal we don't know what's going to happen in the news so we don't have any news we just have a very very full so it's going to call it a christmas maybe we should call it a christmas a, a, a foolish christmas sack evoke the the, the 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 images of santa having finished his trip we've still got a we got a sack we got a santa's sack full of mailbag questions should we uh Get on, do you reckon? Let's dip into the sack. Beautiful, let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Hey, before I do, we're not stepping into the sack. We're going to take mail out of the sack, just for the record. That sounds like a really good Otherwise, idea. we're doing like, you know, sort of potato sack races and it it's, brings me back horrible, horrible memories of being six and at primary school having to do those, you know, those novelty races, a three-legged race and the potato sack race and the egg and spoon race and... That's not a happy memory for me, man. I'm not. I'm not an athlete. Put it that way. No, uh, let's not do that. <laughs> Should we get out of the questions? Let's get on. We had a one from Dave, mate, via email. Oh, I forgot last week to do these socials again. I'm supposed to give those details out. I'm getting slack. But you, you know, can you remind me at the end? I will. All right. So Dave emailed us. Teaser or spoiler alert. Okay. Info at fool.com.au. Dave said, "Guys, enjoy the show." despite most of it not being of value to me being in the US. Well, I, I think that's a compliment, Dave. If, you, if, if you're actually not getting much out of the show, but you still enjoy it, I'll take that as a compliment. That's definitely a compliment. Thank you, mate. However, I do have a question that perhaps you have answered before, but it will take me a while to go through all your back issues. Well, Dave, see, here's the thing. You should have listened to them already, mate. What else are you doing with it? What could you possibly be doing that's more important than listening to all of the back episodes of Motley Fool Money? Absolutely. Go do it. The, that's the most important thing to do. Correct. We're not going to answer his question, right? I will still answer this question. Oh, okay. Fair enough. We, we nice people. <laughs> now, now we did, we have, we've had a couple of questions on this topic, mate. And, and to be fair, we've actually pre-recorded a couple of episodes. So I can't remember the one we've already <laughs> already pre-recorded or we've already put out. But I think when this goes to air, we will have had the questions about, and, and language warning, slight language warning. We had a question about uh, someone who thought we were being described as dicks within a Porsche. In fact, the, the line from the Triple M people is not a couple of dicks in a Porsche. So, so we did cl- clarify that in a previous episode, I think. However, Dave is on the same topic saying, the question relates to the statement you are not a couple of dicks that drive a Porsche. True. The question is, okay, what do you drive? And we thought this was not exactly investment related, but it is podcast related. And mm. Hey, it's post-Christmas, it's pre-New Year, it's in that lull. So why not answer the question? 
He then says also, P.S. It takes a bit longer to listen to your podcast as I have to listen at 1x speed rather than at 1.5x speed of the other po- the podcasts done in the United States. Cheers, Dave. Uh, Dave, apologies. I, I do not have the vocal dexterity nor sublime uh, listening... Uh, what's the word? I'm, I'm, I'm not as good a listener as Chris Hill, put it that way. Our, our, our podcast host extraordinaire in the US is Chris Hill, who has a voice that belongs in some sort of uh, Richard Mercer love god territory and who is lovely to listen to. I'm not Chris Hill. And so we, uh, I apologize, I also speak too fast, as we well and truly know. And I try every time. Here's, here's a bit of an inside look, Dave. At the top of, the, the top of our script every week, I have in big, bold letters, talk slowly. And I start that way. It just doesn't keep going. <laughs> All right. So back to Dave's question because, you know, if there's more tangents than podcasts, mate, should we officially, are we officially in the wrong classification? Can we officially be an investing podcast if we do more tangents we, than investing? It can be the tangent podcast. The tangent. I mean, there should be a category for those. Well, it could be, it could be a category by itself. We'd be number one. And we'd be number one. Because we'd be the only one there. Which is great. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> There's no harm in coming first if you're the only person in the race. I, I, speaking of tangents, my only ever school sporting success, I came second in a backstroke race in primary school. There were two people there? No, I think there was three, but it, was, <laughs> it still wasn't that great. <laughs> so I came second last rather than coming second, but that was enough. Somewhere my mother has a red ribbon with, with second on it that I got in, I think, year five. I think it was year five. That was my first and last great sporting achievement at school, Correct. I have to say. Well, right. congratulations. Thank you. Back to Dave's question. Don't let me get distracted. That's your job. Uh, mate, uh, plus, I mean, remind me to do the socials. You're a busy man. All right, he says, the question is, okay, what do you drive? Now, our loyal listeners, and Dave, not that you're not loyal, but our longer-term listeners are yelling at their listening devices right now. They know the answer. There are hands shooting up all around Australia and in the US where Dave is and in Singapore and Hungary, as we've already talked about, and London. We heard about that one a couple of weeks ago. Hands up all over the place. But, Doc, put Dave out of his misery, mate. What car do you drive? Uh, so I recently got a Tesla Model 3. There we go. And uh, I love the question because he says it's a Porsche because <laughs> my Tesla Model 3 can smoke a Porsche any day. Uh, in fact, it can smoke most other Nice cars. Didn't I see recently, though, that the Porsche beat the Tesla? Didn't I see that? You know, um, lots of car beats lots of different cars in uh, racetracks. <laughs> what counts is do you actually have something on the road that can beat <laughs> the other cars? And, um, you know, I'll say this. I love the fact that if I'm, you know, yesterday while driving at Campbelltown, I mm. saw a very beautiful black Maserati. Okay. Beautiful. You know, and, I'm, and it's just we're back from school. This is a massive tangent, I know. Uh, back from school, picking out the daughter and my wife was, in, and like I, you know, my, my daughter said, Why are you smiling? I said, I really hope at this time that the Maserati and, and our car line up at the traffic light. <laughs> and then we'll see who wins. And, and did it? And no. Oh. Because, you know, that would be the greatest joy because the Maserati is a really expensive <laughs> car. <laughs> so I've not had the joy of racing a Maserati yet, but uh, I, I know that, uh, yeah, the, the Tesla Model 3 would smoke the, the Porsche. So, yeah, that, that's my answer. <laughs> Long-winded answer. There you go. So, you, Dave, you've made Doc a very happy man. Whenever he gets to talk about his Tesla, he, he smiles a little bit more brightly. He stands a little bit taller. His blood pressure goes down. He's a, he's a happy man, our Doc, when he gets to uh, 
When, when he gets to talk about his Tesla. Remember, Tesla's waiting to get another software update. There'll be like two software updates in a week. Man, a proper car company to have only one. They only need one, surely. Well, the proper car company. If it's a, if it's a, if it's a proper car company, it would say there's only one software update that you can have, and that software update you really need to come to a dealer for which you need to book an appointment. And guess what? They're going to charge you some really nice dollars for the software update, which is really not going to be really a good software update. Now, Dave, it was a wonderful question for you to ask because it makes Doc happy, and if Doc's happy, I'm happy. So you know that was that was okay. Dave made was a great question. Well, I also it, it also coincides with we're recording this on on a day when Doc had to pick me up from the station because my car was being dropped in for service, and so he mentioned to me that I probably should have bought a car that doesn't need servicing, and that's possibly fair. It also coincides with our other car had a a warning light come on and had to book it in for an unscheduled service. So, look, it's not a great day to be a non-Tesla owner in our place. Just, you know, Doc's coming to my place to do the recording. We're we're doing it from the home studio here and uh, and Doc picked me up from the station on the way, which which was kind of him and I appreciated it. But frankly, it just gave him the opportunity to remind me that I didn't have a Tesla. Uh, For the record, uh, we have two cars in our family. We have a a Volkswagen Golf and a Toyota Prado. So uh, no Porsches, no sports cars. Uh, the Golf is a wonderful little car, by the way. Super, super fuel efficient and, and great value for money. The Prado takes us places that we want to go. We did Birdsville last year. Uh, we're going to, or this year, we're still in 2019. Uh, next year, we're going to head out probably to Wilpina Pound in Uluru. So, um, horses for courses. Uh, Doc has convinced me. Actually, I've put my deposit down for a Cybertruck. So, Doc's, about ha- Doc's happy about that. Although, he secretly, I think he doesn't want me to buy it because that proves that it's worth owning or something. Isn't that the story? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> It's I'm, like I, I'm sure I should be offended by that, mate, but I can't bring myself. It's 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 like you know, it's like you know, if if you buy the iPhone, <laughs> Apple is basically dead. It's basically just that, right? So it's kind of like Facebook, well, right? By the time the uncool people like me are using it, it's too late, and the kids have moved no, on. No, I I think you should have the Cybertruck, so you know, yeah, <laughs> you can look like the cool kid on uh, uh, in Barrow. <laughs> anyway, so yes, there are there are cars, Dave. Thank you for the question, and thank you for giving Doc the opportunity post Christmas to um, well. To enjoy his Tesla ness or something. Should we move on? Yeah, let's move on. That's our last Tesla. Well, I guess that's our last Tesla question. Whether it's the last mention of Tesla, that's a whole different question that we still haven't resolved yet. Stay tuned. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Next question, mate, came from Billy. And I know that because he says, Hi, Scott and Doc, it's Billy here again. He said, the fool who gambled on Carnegie Clean Energy, still waiting for my 0.02 cent buyer. <laughs> and he smiles. Uh, good luck, Billy. We hope you get it. Uh, we're more than happy to be wrong if our listeners are making money despite our concerns. That's okay with us. He says, thanks for asking my last question. On your program, I have another one. Zip, Z-I-P, announced a round of fundraising back on Black Friday with two tranches of capital raising. One to institutional investors, which they achieved within days, and a ten million capital raising to existing retail shareholders at three seventy a share. It was trading at three ninety a share when it was announced. Since then, however, Zip has dropped to about three fifty two a share. I'm no longer a shareholder, having sold them when they hit five dollars a share. Nice humble brag, thank you, Billy. So this is a general question. Firstly, given the seeming ease with which they were able to raise the money with institutions. Why is the market so bearish on Zip? And then secondly, why would an existing shareholder buy shares even without brokerage at 370 when they can buy them on the market at 352? Thanks, guys. Love the Marbag episodes and full on. Good man, Billy. We love the full on sign off. Thank you, mate. And thank you for being kind about the podcast as well. 
Doc, we uh, I think well, certainly Afterpay is a recommendation of one of our services. I think ZipPay might actually be one of our portfolio reports we put out not long ago. Yeah, I think Zip is a recommendation in some portfolio service. So to just close yeah. both of those up front. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's go through this. So the the basic idea is where they they announced the capital raising. The market didn't like it, or at least subsequently, the combination of that and whatever other news might have come out saw the share price go down. So to Billy's question, if they were able to raise fifty million bucks with institutions so quickly, how did the market go so bearish? Well, you know, I think the the main thing to note here is that they got they got the institutional part of the raising done, right? And then what really, um, you know, if the share price moves backwards, then the retail placement doesn't work because right. why would you buy the shares at 370? Which when is you the can, question Billy's asked. Yeah, when you can when you can buy the shares at 350. So, right. I mean, for whatever reason, uh, the market, you know, has um, cooled down a bit yep. on, on, on Zip. And Billy's kind of answering that though. Like, why has the market? If, if the if the instos who are supposedly the smart money are happily gobbling up shares at three seventy, how does the share then fall to three fifty two? Well, price? I mean, you know, for one, this entire uh, sector is very mm. volatile, right? So, you know, most of these companies, their share prices move up and down a lot, right? On pretty much a day to day basis. So, why does it move ten percent? It's that really hard to answer. I mean. Okay. Um, so yeah. that's kind of a reminder, though, that right. I think to some degree, Billy, inherent in Billy's question is, well, hang on, the smart money bought it at three seventy. Why is it not worth buying at three fifty two? I think we'd probably say that sometimes the so called smart money. I don't know if we're pejorative about it, but we shouldn't necessarily assume instos are have any particular great insights or abilities that the average investor doesn't have. Yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, you know, there are thousands of instances where, you know, insiders have sold and the stock has gone up 4x. Mm. There are instances where insiders have sold and the stock has gone to zero, right? I mean, it happens both ways. And yeah, like, I mean, on on any of these buy now, pay later, the entire sector, I think, Mm. is is very volatile. And no, I wouldn't assume that the smart money necessarily knows that the stock is going to go up. So, right. um, yeah, I don't follow Zip that closely, so okay. I don't have a view on the price per se. But, um, yeah. yeah, like, I mean, I can I can totally see why it can fall from, like, you know, 370 to 350. And 370 to 350 is not a big fall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I guess the inherent in Billy's question is probably, if I ask the question in reverse... If Instos are paying 370, shouldn't it be a steal at 350? I mean, if you're an individual shareholder and you're saying, well, hang on, all these guys ponied up 50 million bucks at a higher price, should I be should I be very keen, pretty keen, a bit keen, overwhelmingly keen at a lower share price? I mean, if they're gonna if they're gonna part ways with 50 million bucks at 370, in theory, they should like it more at 350, and shouldn't we as well? Well, it depends on what you think uh, the business is going to be worth, should be worth today, and will be worth in the future, right? I mean, mm. it could be a steal or may not be a steal right i mean that's again <laughs> right I, I think that's a very that's that's a hard question to answer without really like digging into the business and i mean so yeah, i know a little bit about zip so i mean there are a couple of things zip is not um zip doesn't have those international opportunities yet mm. that afterpay has mm. um so that's a big difference mm. right and and i i, I think a company that's leveraged that's basically a type of credit opportunity that's leveraged to just Australia is a higher risk proposition than 
a, a company that is mm. um, still a credit company but is leveraged to global opportunities, right? Okay, so, but Zip's about one fifth of the market cap. So Zip's about one and a half billion after pay close to eight. So give me give me give me a couple of running errors there. About five times the size Afterpay, admittedly massive opportunity internationally. Is that market cap relativity about right, do you think, on that basis? I mean, some people would say, well, even without the international, Zip should be worth something more than a fifth of Afterpay's value. Other people are saying, well, all the Afterpay upside is in the international expansion. So without without you know, without know, international, maybe Afterpay is only itself only worth a couple of billion dollars. So how much do you say was Zip's? Uh... One and a half. Uh, one point, let me give you exactly, $1.43 billion. And Afterpay is about eight. Eight, yeah. Eight. So here's another way to think about it, right? So the US market is at least 10x the size of of the Australian market. Yep. So if you assume that the Australian success translates to uh, to US success, I would right. think that your market cap should be 10x. So right. in that sense, if you assume that Zip is fairly valued or whatever mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. then maybe Afterpay is undervalued. You know, in that, <laughs> you know, you can make an mm-hmm. argument mm-hmm. either way. Um, so is is Afterpay your favorite of the two? Yeah. So I mean, in the buy now pay later category, I think Afterpay is the leader. Right. And it is growing really fast. It's got lots of traction. Mm. It's getting good traction in the US. It's getting good traction in the UK. And those are really large markets. Um, they've got uh, a senior management team mm. with, uh, you know, who have, uh, who, are, who have come from big companies as well. Mm. So I think the, the business is really set to, to grow. Despite all the risks it has, I think. Um, now, if this was if this was akin, this is a financial services company in the payment space. There's room for Mastercard and Visa and Amex. Uh, maybe, maybe there's room for more than one buy now pay later. And maybe if they both are successful, there's simply more pure leg room, headroom for up for Vizipay in that in that scenario. Or maybe they're more like social media or social networking where. You know, it's a bit more winner takes all. Is that how you're seeing this particular payment space? Yeah, like so the way I look at this payment space, I mean, the payment space is a bit complicated, right? I mean, there are mm. all these different players. So Visa, MasterCard are are different in the sense that they basically are the network that allows the payment flows to happen. Right. So in a way, everybody needs Visa and MasterCard, right? Right. So they are effectively toll roads. And the way I look at the buy now, pay later, is buy now, pay later basically is another way to provide an FPOS solution. It's huh, basically okay. a solution that you're providing hmm. at the point of sale. So it's a point of sale solution, really, okay. effectively, okay. right? Because, and it's in a, another way, there's many ways in which you can think about this, but... Um, <laughs> You know, like small businesses, for example, when people pay to small businesses using credit cards mm. and credit cards immediately don't make that money available to um, uh, to the small business, mm. like there's this lag in terms of payments clearing, mm. then there's a cash flow problem, right? So some companies, for example, provide cash flows to small businesses by basically saying, well, you know, I take the credit card, uh, I assume that the credit card is effectively going to pay, and therefore today I'm going to pay you that money and I'm going to charge you an interest for that. Yeah, right. In, in Afterpay is basically doing something similar, basically saying, well, you know, I'm going to pay the money today and it's going to increase your basket size and for that I'm going to take a cut from you. Right. It's so there are many ways in which um, these payment payment solution companies are providing solutions to retailers, yep. and they are sort of at the end point and not really in, in the in not really in the pathway like the the Visa and Mastercard are, right? So yeah, so I think there's room for multiple different types of solutions. That so are you 
bearish on Zip or just more bullish on Afterpay? No, so I'm not bearish on Zip. I think the entire sector can grow. Okay. Um, what, again, like at a certain valuation, Zip is attractive. Zip's, I think, issue is, is just the market. Right. I think it's got, it's got a similar product, but, you know, it's got a smaller share in the Australian market. And effectively, um, I mean, when, I guess, when somebody's offering Afterpay, there is some logic there to believe that they should also offer Zip. Right. Mm. Uh, well, I certainly seen that being that that point being made widely. You, if you're a retailer, you don't you don't really care yeah. which buy now pay later provider the consumer uses. Yeah. So unless one of the one of the providers is giving you a sweetheart deal to to have exclusivity, it's like saying it's like it's like any no, no business has just Visa or just Mastercard. I mean, some do, I guess, but yeah. and, and and to be fair, many don't have Amex, right? So there is there is an element of we don't take it all, for, and that's largely a, a pricing reason, but. You, of course, you're going to offer all credit card or most credit card solutions. You're probably going to why turn away a Zip customer if you, just because you don't offer Zip? You, you might as well offer both, right? Yeah, but I think this is a little bit of a, like a little bit of a first mover type of more uh, more entrenched opportunity sort of situation going on, right? If most people right. have accounts with Afterpay, but they don't have account with Zip, then there is an there's an effort required to make for the retailer yeah. to actually get them to open a Zip account. You know, get it validated, get then them to actually buy or sell uh, via Zip, right? right. And if that's not happening, um, if people, if you know, if effectively, if more retailers accept accept Afterpay, then um, you know that becomes a self sort yeah. of you know reinforcing thing because you know more retailers accept Afterpay, therefore more customers want Afterpay, right. and that sort of cycle builds. You know, it, it's a, it's a little bit of a um, virtuous cycle in that yeah. sense right i've always been a little bit surprised actually why retailers take both well why, why visa and mastercard both have a place in the market i have to say like competition is always good i'm not i'm not unhappy that they're there but at some point visa and mastercard are, are i mean ironically given this huge margins they're making they're kind of commodity services right there is no difference between visa and mastercard other than just just a random choice right like i happen to have a visa card in my wallet you could just easily be a mastercard my bank could just easily offer either. The retailer could just easily accept either. To some degree, I'm kind of surprised that both have been able to be as successful in a in a what it's a relatively commoditized space already. You're right. There's no reason why you shouldn't just have Afterpay, but there's no reason why you shouldn't just have Visa either. It's like there's how do you how do you see that if it is different? How is it different, or, or how do you think it might play out in a different way? Yeah. So again, so you're talking about so, so some disclosures. I own Mastercard shares. Um, okay. If effectively. I think there are a couple of trends. One is, yes, both provide uh, essentially a payment network. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not just the fact that they're a payment network. It's the fact that there's this driving trend towards, you know, less cash, yeah, more electronic payments. And as the payment volume in total increases for um, electronic payments effectively both of these companies are benefiting. So, you know, sure. none of these companies are sure. growing their top line at a huge rate, but they are, um, you know, effectively very, you know, scalable businesses, right? So as more dollars are flowing through the payment networks, they're basically just making more money. Yeah. And, you know, like they, they both have similar, in many ways, similar, um, you know, take rates, right? The amount of money that they charge, you know, mm. take rate being basically the, the percentage of the transaction volume that they are taking. Right? Okay, so, yeah. so, you know, so they're basically riding a secular tailwind as, as 
you know, as we go towards more digital transactions and eventually, you know, at some day we're going to have digital money. Right. Um, these companies basically stand to benefit because, you know, they, they're just the right uh, companies at the sure, right time. Sure, sure. But I guess I'm wondering why, why one hasn't dominated. I mean, you know, think about the afterpay zip pay question. Why, you know, it just is curious to me that we haven't seen one or the other of those two networks dominate. And then thinking about how buy now, pay later might evolve. Yeah. We could very well see one have 99% of the market. We could in a different version of the world have, you know, two players with 50% each or something similar or some other variational combination of both in the way that Visa and MasterCard have kind of got this, I would say cozy because it kind of implies some sort of, you know, untoward activity. But, you know, they've got this duopoly that's working very nicely for them. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, again, I think that the, we have to probably go into the history of this and I'm not really, right. um, you know, that familiar with the history. Like, I mean, both of these payment networks came out of banks, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, oh, okay. so, so different banking networks created them. So part of the, part of the kind of creation structure more than… Yeah, like these right, are alternatives okay. that have come out of the banks that have been eventually, you know, like, you know, Visa… I believe I don't know Visa's story that well, but I, I think Visa mm. had a European version that was, you know, still owned by banks, which has recently been acquired or sometime back been acquired. So, so they they're mm. effectively mm. byproducts of the banking world, um, and they were just okay, two competing different yeah, yeah, yeah. offerings yeah. that happened to be. And you know, okay. Amex is slightly different. Right? Amex has a network, but also provides credit. Um, so mm. Amex is different. There, there's then there are others that have tried to copy this, right? There's diners mm. and mm. a few others that I forget. There's diners and something else. So, um, I think I think first mover actually matters, and you know, maybe it's a duopoly, maybe it's a you know mm. uh, quadrupoly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but I think first mover in something that becomes accepted, I think is is. Um, it is interesting and nice. it's important. Now, let's just quickly uh, cover off the back half of Billy's question and then we'll move on. Um, you kind of inferred it already by your own rhetorical asking of the same question he asked, which is, why would an existing shareholder buy shares even without brokerage at 370 when they can buy them on the market at 352? And the answer is they won't, right? Which is why they didn't. <laughs> well, they shouldn't at least. <laughs> they shouldn't. I mean, uh, well, and in this case, I think yeah. 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 most of them didn't. So, yeah, uh, yeah he answered his own question <laughs> uh, there. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the company think, uh, you know, the company can't know either where the share price goes. In a different universe, the share price could have been three ninety, and so individual shareholders would have happily bought at three seventy. The fact the share price fell to three fifty is just one of those things. It is, by the way, and look, I don't love, in fact, I don't like at all institutional capital raisings where they're given preferential access to larger amounts of capital. On the flip side, the benefit that companies have by raising money with institutions is they can actually lock in a price and a volume and an amount of money up front. Whereas in this case, as you've already said, Billy, you know, shareholders didn't pony up the 10 million bucks that the company was looking for because the price was simply too high relative to what you could buy it on the market for. And so Zip wanted $10 million to do things with. It now has to forego access to that 10 million bucks because it's simply not available to them so that that's the, that's the flip side of the same the same question um i you know i don't like institutional offerings that are not fair for all shareholders but if you're a company who needs the money i get why that's an attractive option and this sort of is circumstance exactly why we sometimes see that happen let's move on real money advice from real people not just a couple of dicks with a porsche Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Made a question from Paul. Uh, Paul actually asked this question a while ago, so my apologies, Paul. We're only getting to it now. Um, Paul says, there seems to be a substantial discount of up to 20% in listed investment companies, 
between the book value of the, and the stocks these LICs have purchased. Can you understand why this is happening? And can you see any reason why this would not be a buying opportunity? Thank you, Scott and Doc. Full on. Paul, that's a really, really great question. So I'm going to I'm going to define our terms, Doc, and I'm going to ask you for your thoughts, and I might weigh in at the end. Um, dare say you'll probably cover it all anyway, but let's I'll, I'll give it a go. So the first thing we need to talk about is what a listed investment company is. A listed investment company is a business. I don't think we'll see a whole heap of them in the future because ETFs have kind of taken over. But the idea was basically that rather than investing in a fund, sending your check off to a fund manager who ran Scott and Doc Capital, for example, uh, Scott and Doc Capital could list on the stock market as a, as a, as a company, as a stock. And in that case, the type of company we would be forming is not a manufacturing company or a farming company or a tech company, but a company that invests. In other words, it's a listed company because on the ASX, and it's an investment company, so therefore it's a listed investment company. Some of the big examples are AFIC, AFIC, and Argo Investments, long, long track records in Australia. Arguably, Salt Pattinson, um, which I own shares in, is also a listed investment company. It's kind of a it's kind of a bit of a Frankenstein conglomerate in a good way, but it's a, it's a bit of everything because it has wholly owned businesses and it does other things. So, But broadly, a listed investment company in a purest form is just a business that exists to invest its shareholders' capital in other investments. So that's what, that's what it's for. Now, the vast bulk of those only buy listed stocks. Now, if you have a, and let's just keep the number simple, uh, what, what Paul's implying here is, look, there's a listed investment company and it owns shares in just, I'm going to pick a number, just, let's say just Woolworths because it's easy, and it owns 100 bucks worth of shares in Woolies. So by rights, you'd say, well, hang on, if, if the company's assets are $100 worth of Woolies shares, and that's all, then the company should trade for 100 bucks a share, right? Because that's the value of its assets. Uh, now, in this instance, what Paul's saying is, well, hang on, the LIC is currently trading at 80 bucks a share. The value of his assets are 100. Kind of A, why? And B, wouldn't you want to buy 100 bucks with a woolly shares for 80 bucks? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you do exactly that if you had the choice? And that's a really good question. So, Doc, what's the answer to Paul's question? Uh, you know, I don't know. Me. I mean, why that happens, um, I really don't know. I, I don't deal with LICs really I don't <laughs> they're not, lo- not the sort of growth company or tech company you particularly like I don't, I don't love LICs <laughs> I really I don't see the point of LICs yeah um, not, not, the, not the current world no yeah I mean I uh, I can I get ETFs mm, it yeah it's it's like I mean I mean maybe this is like some sort of manager discount or something that's being applied <laughs> you know you put put I mean, the assets are yeah. current assets, and maybe something happens, and you know, you sell stuff, and then you you could blow up the. Effectively, you're running a fund, right? I mean, you can blow mm-hmm. up the performance, and yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I I don't have a good answer for this. Yep. No, good question. There are a couple of answers, Paul, that I've heard expressed, and I'll I'll share them with you. Um, to Doc's point, there is no obvious rational answer. Otherwise, we'd already you know, there would be no discount. So, to some degree, the the only answer is market inefficiency. To some degree, let me give you the other answers though, and we'll come back to it. So, the first is that an LIC should, by definition, trade at a discount to the value of the assets it holds, and the reason is because the manager is going to take their cut. Now. Without getting again into the weeds in, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, getting in the weeds of, of trying to explain calculations in a podcast because it's painful. If you think about, let's let's say you had 100 bucks in uh, assets and you were going to pay somebody 1% a year to manage those assets for you. Now, if you add no money and you take no money out and the, the value of the assets don't change over time, the fact that the manager is taking their 1% this year, then next year, then the year after, the year after, the year after that should mean that you you will redeem. It's almost like negative interest rates, right? You you'll get back after ten years ninety 
ish dollars, bit bit more because it's ten, it's one percent of a lower asset base. But work with me. You get call it ninety. You get ninety bucks back in ten years' time. So even though the value of the assets is a hundred bucks now, hundred bucks of Woolly shares, if you've got to pay every year a manager to run that business for you, in other words, run the LIC. Most LICs don't have huge fees. They don't have huge um, performance fees either, but they do have some fees. So to some degree, the, the the again to use the finance term, the net present value of that asset, given those fees, you know are going to be taken out of your LIC, you actually should be paying less because you know it's going to cost you more to, to manage that. If you just own Woolly shares yourself, there's no management fee. If someone's going to own them for you, there is a management fee. And so the value of the LIC should be worth less than the value of the assets. So that's the first logical reason why that should be true. The second reason is to some degree, the market, you know, unless the, unless the LIC is going to cash out that value at some point, there is no absolute certainty that any discount will be closed. Sol Pats, again, I talked about, they've traded at exactly this sort of a discount almost enti- you know, un- unendingly for a decade. So again, unless they're going to close out that and give the money back, you know, the market has to all of a sudden at some point believe the LIC is worth more than it currently is relative to those assets. In other words, it has to close that gap for you to actually make money on that gap. Just because it exists doesn't mean it's going to go away. Now, efficient markets theory would say it will because it should because there's a discount there and the market should arbitrage that away. But again, unless there's going to be someone who takes action to do it, it won't happen. Now, you may remember Mark Carnegie tried to get Sol Pats to break up the cross holding with Brickworks a while ago. And that was exactly for this particular reason. He was like, hey, the market doesn't get this and nothing's going to change. So I want to break this up and basically force a realization of that discount. In other words, I want, I want to force the market to close that gap by separating out the assets. That's one way it could happen. But again, Afik and Argo and the others aren't going to want to all of a sudden you know, basically shut themselves down just because of that discount. They're probably never going to do that. So there's no absolute reason why that gap must close. They're the two reasons why it might happen. Um, would it be a good buying opportunity? Look, generally speaking, I think yes. I mean, if any time you get to buy assets that are cheaper than the going value, that would make sense. If I can buy eighty bucks with the Woolly shares, sorry, hundred bucks with the Woolly shares for eighty bucks, well, I should do it, right? That's 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 Buffett's, you know, um, you know, buying buying dollars worth of assets for seventy cents. That's exactly what you want to do, ideally. And so, yes, there's value in that. Just remember, of course, the gap may not close. Now, if you're if your LIC owns stocks that are paying big dividends, that actually improves the dividend yield. And that's really worthwhile, right? So if you can, if, if Westpac's yield is 5%, but it's effectively 6% because you're buying it for 80 bucks or 80 cents on the dollar for $80 for every $100 worth of assets, that also can be worthwhile. So there's, there's reasons why it might make sense. The very last reason before we move on, because I've monologued for a while, is you have to make sure you actually want those assets in the first place and the market's getting it right. Um, to, use the, to use the best example, if you'd have bought an LIC that owned Enron shares back in the day and you said, hey, the LIC is, you know, I can buy 80 bucks with, or 100 bucks worth of Enron shares for 80 bucks, that's a great deal. Again, if you could close that arbitrage gap, it is a great deal because you can close the gap, take advantage of the $20 discount and walk away. But if you're holding those Enron shares at a discount, thinking, great, I've done a great deal. I bought these assets for cheap. Well, it was cheaper than the market price, but it was still very, very, very expensive. The same would be true of OneTel or HAH or any of those businesses that subsequently went broke. Just be careful. Just again, unless you can force a realization of the discount or close that discount and get the money for it, you have to want to own those assets and you have to believe those assets are truly worth what the market thinks. We talked about Woolies a couple of weeks ago. If I could buy 38 bucks worth of, oh, sorry, again, I keep getting the numbers wrong. Yeah, if I could buy 38 bucks worth of Woolies for $35, is that a 10% discount? Well, yeah. But if I think Woolies is really worth 20 bucks, 
well, there's no reason for me to want to buy woolly shares for 35, even if the market says they're worth 38, because I think over time they're worth even less than that. And so, again, you need to be careful. Unless you can make that discount close, you are at the mercy of the market and the value of those underlying assets themselves. How'd it go, Doc? That was uh, a long one. You mean thorough and inf- informative? Very informative. And thorough. Very good. And useful. Awesome. <laughs> Let's move on. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. Next one came from Cameron. This, I love doing mailbags. You love doing mailbags too, don't you? I love mailbags. Mailbags are my favorite. Thank you, Cameron, for your sending us a question so we get to talk and help you out. Hopefully, we'll find out. Hey, guys, love the podcast. Great variety of topics. And it's great hearing different points of view you both have on the topics and questions. This helps me think through my own opinion rather than just accepting what I hear which we love, by the way, like we, we give advice and we give advice that we think people can take directly because that's why we give advice. But we're also big, big fans of saying to our listeners, our members, hey, this is what we think, but make sure you feel comfortable with that before yourself because if you, don't, if you aren't comfortable with the advice, either you won't take it or you will take it, but at the first sign of trouble, you'll probably sell out in a panic and go and do something else. So um, Cameron, we love that you're thinking for yourself. It's a course of action we recommend to all of our listeners and all of our members. All right. He says, I have a question for the mailbag section. Well, this is a special mailbag episode, not only just a section, Cameron. This is the big time. Owning Australian shares via direct ownership using a broker, e.g. Philip Capital, versus a wrap or platform provider like NetWealth, where the platform has direct ownership. I love all the benefits of platform options, like having everything in one place, lower cost of trades, excellent options of funds, access to overseas markets, etc. But I'm nervous about not having direct ownership. Is that a reasonable worry? Now, we should disclose that net wealth is a recommendation of ours, so let's get that out of the way first in one, at least one of our services. Um, not mine, but one of our services. So, Doc, this is... So there's a whole lot, of, a whole lot of options here. Let's do them separately. So let's talk first about the benefits of direct... or the benefits and costs or risks of direct versus indirect ownership of shares. What, what is that and why does it matter? You know, uh, I'll probably be in the minority here, but I see little to no benefit of direct ownership if it comes with huge costs. Um, I'm a big fan of the uh, the indirect ownership model, the uh, the cost benefits that come with that model. It effectively allows for um, you know lower cost of trading, lower you know lower cost of ownership, uh, less hassles, uh, and things like things like that. You know, we are uh, one of the few. I guess markets which have this uh, uh, direct ownership model. Um, the you know the the US is the largest equity market of the world. You know, largely does not have a direct ownership model. You most people own shares via um, a brokerage where the brokerage holds the stock um, or shares in trust. Um, and yeah, we are seeing sort of that model come through here. Uh, via platforms which basically effectively are doing something similar but providing access uh, you know as uh, as Cameron said to uh, to not just the local market international markets different equities different um, um, you know funds and doing that at a low cost so um, I think it it is good um, yeah so I think that's um, the, yeah the flip side I think is that you know if if you have direct ownership, then if 
the um, if the brokerage, I guess, goes bust, then you know what happens to your ownership. I think it becomes a little area at that point. I mean, effectively, you still own. Um, I mean, if the if the stocks are held in trust for you, then you effectively you still own it. So uh, there's that that question. Um, yeah, but I mean, it becomes a little bit unclear at that point what happens, and and I think that's that's probably the only positive I can see of the direct ownership model. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the other side of that, Doc. Actually, not not strongly as much as you weren't strong in, in one in your direction either. I, I mean, I, don't know, I, I won't comment about net wealth particularly because I don't know the structure of their ownership or, and how the, the shares are owned. So I will I will avoid talking about that because I don't want to. Frankly, I don't know and I don't want to cast aspersions. So my turn to say I don't know. Um, I also agree, by the way, that in the US where it's the norm, you're you're completely you know it is what everyone else does and there's no direct harm in doing. It. I think it's I think it's I think it's imperfect and I think it's um, less 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 ideal than our current structure here in Australia, exactly for that reason, that it adds a level of risk that you simply don't need to take. And again, like our kind of not going back to square one we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that that very idea of, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather, given the choice, own shares in my own name, and even if I had to pay an extra 10 bucks a trade for doing so, I'd rather do that than have shares in someone else's name. Now, in, in the fullness of time, it may never have been a problem, and I may have wasted the extra money, but to me, it's a, it's a, that extra cost would be a form of insurance. I just simply feel more comfortable. Now, I should say, like everything, I was looking, reading about the voting system in Australia, about compulsory voting, preferential voting versus the UK this morning, and my instinctive response was, well, ours is better. And it just, that is natural, right? So because we have it, we think it's better because the Yanks have theirs, they probably think theirs is better. And there is a decent amount of just simply, you know, psychological bias going on there. So I need to cop to that. That's absolutely true. But given the choice uh, between someone else owning shares in trust or in, in a beneficial interest for me versus me owning them myself, having literal, provable, actual ownership that no one can take away from me, I'd much rather have that given the choice, even at a small incremental cost. Now, that said, as I said, I happily invest in the US. They don't have direct ownership there. Um, they also, though, have insurance. And again, I, that's why I don't want to comment on net wealth or the Australian circumstance because I don't know what insurances or otherwise are in place for Australian shareholders. I am mindful that let's move outside platforms to brokers for a second. We know there have been other brokers who've gone broke and you've, people have lost money because either they weren't held in trust or, frankly, that trust agreement was broken and there simply is no recompense because the entity that controlled the trust also went broke. So having something in trust only works if the trustee can be relied on and is genuinely delivering that. We know, for example, in real estate, you you know, a real estate agent is supposed to put your house deposit in trust. If they don't do it, and actually this happened to me, um, if they don't do it, that can simply go away. The fact that it was supposed to be done or the trust was supposed to be unimpeachable, um, they'd actually taken the money back out of that trust. So it was, in, it was put in there, then it was taken out for their use, um, which apparently they shouldn't be allowed to do. And in the fullness of time, I did get some money back through a scheme that the government ran um, and I was made whole on that, which again is that point about insurance and where what what claim you might have for those assets should a platform provider or its trustee or its regulated entities uh, associated, who whoever owns or controls that trust or those shares, that's the bit you need to be comfortable with. So I don't, I wouldn't necessarily completely avoid a, a, a platform on that basis or a, a broker on that basis. I would want to be very, very, very sure that it was a sufficiently secure solution and whatever insurance or trustee relationship or uh, whatever agreements or, or roles were in place were being fully played out. Opus Prime is the most recent example I can think of in Victoria where a whole lot of customers lost a whole lot of money because uh, the, the, they simply didn't have either, they didn't have access to recompense or the systems that were supposed to be in place weren't followed. But in either way, whatever the reason, 
they actually lost money as a result. And so personally, I would prefer to have direct ownership. But I, again, I'm mindful that's just at least in part because that's what I'm used to. Doc, any, um, any follow-up feedback? No. Let's move on to Chris's question then. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, Chris is someone that, uh, well, I won't say I hate Chris. I will say I'm a little bit uh, unhappy because he's less than half my age. And that generally, as I get older... Uh, I don't hate young people. I just hate the fact they're younger than me. <laughs> so let's go. Chris says, hi, I'm a 21-year-old who is relatively new to investing. I made my first investment a couple of years ago. How good's that, mate? 19. Man. Uh, but I only started taking it seriously more recently. I currently invest around 15% of my pay into shares. How good is that? Because I'm horrible in capitals at saving money. When I put it into shares, at least that way, I don't withdraw it and spend it. Good man. You know what? I assume it's a bloke. Chris, um, that is awesome because it's it's absolutely recognizing the psychological biases that we all fall prey to and, and having that pre-commitment bias um, to, to put money outside your range of access is a very, very, very smart thing to do and good on you for knowing yourself. I will note, however, I get killed by brokerage fees with Comsec. I pay 30 bucks a transaction, which is a lot considering my regular investments are relatively small. There must be a better way to do this. I know it would be prudent to accumulate my pays and invest it all at once. But like I said, I'm honestly useless at saving. I've recently gotten a Comsec pocket and would also like to hear your thoughts on this. The low fees make it very attractive, but I miss the ability to invest in individual stocks. What do you recommend I do at this early stage of my investment journey? It's probably worth noting that my ETFs through Comsec Pocket are performing better than my individual stocks through my Comsec account. This might be a sign to stick with Pocket for now. Would love to hear your thoughts. He says, P.S. I study property valuation at uni and my finance subjects along with your podcast have really got my interest in the investment game. Keep up the great content. All right. And that, by the way, was an Insta question, Doc. Flash the lights, play the sound effects. Insta questions. I'm all about the cool kids, mate. Me and Chris, we're like, we're like, you know, we're both cool kids. Um, all right, I am. I might start with this one. Do you mind? And I'll get your oh, thoughts after no, that. No, no, you go ahead. Yeah, Chris. Um, couple of things. So, mate, you are far, far, far better off getting pounded by brokerage than spending the money on the latest gadget or thing that you otherwise won't value in a couple of years' time and will have taken you away from saving. So you may be a case of the lesser of two evils and that might just be paying up in brokerage. So that you know, if, if that's what it comes down to, I don't think it will, but if that's what it comes down to, stick with what you've got, pay your brokerage, call it a call it a impatience tax, um, and then pay it as a as a as a cost of keeping your keeping your own hands out of your cookie jar. Second thing, mate, what I would do you with Comsec, and I'm with Comsec as well, and we've said before and we'll say again, we have no relationship with Commonwealth Bank at all, or Comsec either specifically. Um, that being said, your Comsec account probably should have come with an account called a CDIA or a Commonwealth Direct Investment Account. Now, that account is a cash account, it's a savings account. And yes, you could take the money back out of that, move it to your transaction account and then spend it on jeans or computers or, or whatever. The, what do the cool kids do these days, Doc? I don't know. they spend on me either. We're too old. I have no idea. Anyway, so Chris, yeah, Chris, if you need to literally not be in any sort of any form of cash at all, then maybe this is not an option for you. But what you can do is take your fifteen percent, and rather than rather than putting it, rather than buying shares immediately with a fifteen percent, you know, straight away, put the fifteen percent not into shares directly, but into the CDIA account, the direct investment account. What that basically does is it'll take it out of your hopefully transaction account. You won't have an ATM card linked to it, or if you do, you can cut it up when you get it. Um, so you know, if you can, if you think you might be disciplined enough to to avoid spending that money you could at least use that kind of 
separate account over there, he says on audio, making a, a physical gesture. Um, if, you know, if, if it's far enough out of arm's reach that you can't spend it directly because you'd have to transfer it back and you'll stop yourself, then maybe you can accumulate that for one, two, three, four pay periods before you then invest that. That'll keep your brokerage lower as a percentage of your investments. <clears throat> that might be sensible. Second thing is Comsec only charge you 10 bucks per trade if you have less than $1,000 to invest. So if you invest 990 bucks, they'll only charge you 10 bucks a trade rather than 30. So again, if you can, depending on how big your trades are and how frequently you're doing them, that's another option. Um, even if you, as it turns out, if you do two trades for 990 each, that's still cheaper than doing one $2,000 trade. So um, that, you know, that, that might be an option if you, if you invest in nine, or it's up to 1,000, so $999, I suppose. But if you invest in, in just, just slightly sub $1,000 lots, you'll keep your brokerage down to about you know, less than 1%, which is a win, um, or just on 1%. Uh, so there are two ways to do it. The other is, as you say, pocket. Pocket is really useful. Uh, look, I don't think – I struggle with this one, mate. So you could say – my ETFs are doing better. I'll stick with ETFs. You could also say, well, while I'm relatively young and investing relatively small amounts of money because – I say relatively small in absolute sense. Once you are 60, hopefully your portfolio is 100 times the size it is today. Then you're playing with with big bickies. For now, it's large relative to your current earnings, so that matters a lot, but won't be as impactful on your future performance. If you make mistakes at 55, it's going to cost you a lot more than making mistakes at 21. So the other way you could do it is to keep investing in individual stocks at 21 and chalk up some of your less awesome outcomes to simply... Um, experience and that, that can be that can be just you know one of the ways to think about how you buy individual stocks right now either way mate I, I have no particular view on that I think you can probably do better than the market with either your own stock picking or advice from someone like the Motley Fool um, which is kind of a quasi ad but you know what I mean if you can find someone to help you beat the market then you're better off if you do that so that's probably worth doing um, but also frankly mate at 21 if you just keep putting 15% of your pay aside for the rest of your life and invest in ETFs you'll you'll be richer than probably 99% of your mates quite literally so um, there's no no harm in just sticking with ETFs if you're more comfortable with that as well um, pocket can be great eventually you're going to have a portfolio large enough that you can move outside pocket anyway uh, I think I would probably try and use the CDIA account if you can and Invest in smaller amounts if you need to to keep that brokerage down. How'd I go, Doc? I think you covered it all. There's nothing for me to add. That's disappointing. Do you, does someone want to say how great my answer was? or how? Your answer was fantastic. All it was right. awesome. <laughs> Should we move on then? Let's do that. All right. Mate, I'm going to give you first go at this one because I'm a sharing, caring kind of guy, as our listeners well know. Mate, he says, uh, hey, Anirban and Mr. Phillips. How exciting is that? Mr. Phillips, they call me Mr. <laughs> How would you reckon Chaz is? I, I didn't get 15, it in this stuff. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've got to take a work. What are your thoughts on the sale of Bellamy's to Chinese owners? I have a young baby, and to me, Bellamy's is like the Coca-Cola of baby formula. I like that. I can't imagine the US ever selling iconic brands like Coke. It appears on the surface that China blocked their Chinese expansion plans to lower the share price prior to the takeover bid. Also, what do you make of the high PE? Great podcast, hashtag full on from Chaz. That's awesome. Let's go through the Bellamy's question, mate. So what do you make of the sale to China's owners is his broad question with the possibility slash allegation that China may have just played around the edges to keep the price down and let one of their companies buy it on the cheap. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm a little disappointed that, you know, he called uh, Bellamy's the Coca-Cola of baby formula. <laughs> I was hoping he's going to say A2 milk is the, uh, <laughs> um, is the, uh, the Coca-Cola Maybe of... Maybe A2 is uh, the apple of baby formula, mate. 
Maybe it was the apple. No, that, that's go. better. There you see. That, that, that's, that's better. I'm helping you out here. Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> Look after your chest, by the way. Um, yeah, so look like I'm, i don't you know here's the thing right um as much as i'd like to think of bellamy's as iconic i, I don't think it was iconic and uh, be kind be kind um and, and well you know, I, i'm being truthful <laughs> i don't think it was iconic yeah, yeah. in um any shape or form i mean here's the thing that people don't realize about bellamy is actually most of the Bellamy's milk is not even Australian. <laughs> so so may, maybe the Chinese didn't realize a victory, that. Either. A victory of branding over reality, you reckon? Oh, yeah. So, you know, it has this beautiful, um, um, you know, allure of everything being from Tasmania. <laughs> but the thing is that the milk, a lot of the milk used to come from Chile and South right. America. Um, so the milk was sourced from South America. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, it was changed from, um, you know, milk to powder, uh, but I believe for a long time by this Kiwi company, Fonterra, I think. Right. <laughs> and so the only thing Bellavis did was put a, put a tin and made it sound <laughs> it's Tasmanian. So now, funnily uh, enough, that was, that, I mean, that at the time, that was the game. <laughs> that was the beauty, right? The beauty of the whole thing was this is a capital light business, no inventory cost, no production cost. So, you know, super capital light, great margins. Worked while it worked. Yeah. Until it didn't. I, until it didn't. I, I think somewhere along the line, I think basically the, uh, I don't know exactly what we could think about it, but basically the, the Daegu market for some reason uh, mm. dried up. You know, I wouldn't think, um, personally, I really don't think that the there was any form of, um, Bellamy's difficulty started much before the the new regulations <laughs> came around about mm. you know infant formula uh, export into China. They did spend about eighteen months waiting for this never seemingly coming authorization for the new product, though, right? Others others were able to import into China, and Bellamy's seemed not to be able to convince the Chinese government to give them clearance. There's only one company that has thus far only one company that has the 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 explicit approval. To to send milk and that's or infant formula that's basically a two milk right right so I mean you know it's it's hard to it's you know I find it hard to argue that um, you know they they did this on purpose I mean why they could have done that to a two milk right they didn't yep. do that to a two milk this I think I think Chinese regulations might be hard to navigate and actually it is it's probably harder to navigate if you don't have. Uh, Foot on the ground, right mm. distributions, right people, and so on. And Bellamy's effectively was a really small company, right? And maybe hadn't built the right, uh, right tools and processes required to get into that market and navigate that market. It does seem there is an element of, if not, if not deliberate, kind of um, harming of Bellamy's. There is some sense that in China, it kind of is a little bit of who you know, right? Like the boots on the ground, the relationships with the regulators, with the politicians. Yeah. I wouldn't say necessarily, and, and look, it's 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 entirely possible this was all orchestrated, right? We, we, that, that's, there's a mm. chance, but it, it it seems more likely to your point, or sorry, maybe not even to your point, but uh, I, I make the point that you know I think I agree with you. It's probably not directly orchestrated, but there might have been some challenges that Bellamy's and even Blackmores are having around finding a way to access and be successful in the Chinese market without having local knowledge, local relationships, local. Um, abilities to just frankly get things done however it needs to be done in China. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean here's another way to think about it that, you know, this, you know, the brand suffered uh, when uh, after Daegu, mm. uh, you know, think went kaput and then the brand has suffered for 18, 20 months without, you know, having this ability to, 
would you really, if you're a buyer, would you really mm. want to buy something that has actually been out of mind, out of sight in some ways from um, consumers mm. for 20 months, 24 months, mm. you know, two years is a long time in, you know, after, and, and in this, in this period, there have been so many other competition, so much other competition in, in the infant formula market. And the infant formula market is effectively a pretty um, competitive mm-hmm. market, right? I mean, it's basically discretion. It's basically commodity, if you think about it, other than the branding effect, you know, everybody from Nestle to, you know, A2 to, you know, so many other companies are doing the same thing. So, mm-hmm. and the idea of, so I don't know that America, does America have any equivalent of our foreign investment review board? Do you know? I mean, it, yeah, if, I think so. I okay. mean, well, I, I think deals, mergers and deals may need to probably be approved uh, but mostly, I think, for anti-competitive reasons. Yeah, because I, I don't recall, maybe just because the U.S. market's the biggest market in the world, maybe it never happens, but I don't recall the U.S. government stopping anyone buying an American company anytime recently. Can you think of a... Yeah, well, I think you... I get, but not actually purchasing. I think you can be... You can be uh, I think a, a buy might not happen because of security reasons right? or for monopoly reasons, but okay. I don't think there is... But I think it's broadly the same thing here too, right? I mean, mm. the government, I mean, there is a board, but the government would say, okay, you can't buy this because it is a genuine security issue mm. Mm. or it's a, you know, it's somehow going to be market dominating issues. I, I, I'm not, yeah, I mean, mm. maybe the name sounds like that, but I think the last one that was not allowed was, was Grain Corp, right? And that was mostly on the ground of it being a basically a food security issue. Yeah, look, yes, I, 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 yeah, I, I think we can't divorce because of the realities of life. And again, it's not a political statement, but it's a statement about politics. Uh, so it's not a party political statement, I probably should say. Um, to some degree, it is absolutely the story of there's an element of politics to this, right? So how, how do we feel about other people owning our grain providers? Um, you know... Yeah, uh, I, I'm look. I I I I'm a bit jaundiced on this one only because so take 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 any of the grain corps for example, right? The government can provide any regulations it wants on what gets imported and exported out of the country, which may bear no resemblance at all to who owns the company. So if I own the company, you own the company, or you know John Smith in Canada owns the company, the Australian government can impose impose exactly the same regulations, which don't need any but make any impact on who actually physically owns it. So yeah. it does strike me that if there are genuine claims of pure national interests, I don't think people understand them. <laughs> I think it's far more likely a political reality of how the punters are going to respond to the fact that another Australian company is being sold rather than genuinely what it actually means for our food security, right? Yeah. Uh, I, maybe, yeah I think I agree with that. Maybe I'm being too, uh, too cynical, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, I think that's right. I, I think... Look, you know, we, we had a, recommend, a buy recommendation on Bellamy's when the company was bought by the Chinese. We thought the eventual license would come or was likely to come, that we're, we're happy to make a thesis on the basis of that, plus genuine, just general growth in, in demand. Um, I probably, all things being equal, would have been happily for us to retain Bellamy's in, on the scorecard at Share Advisor for the foreseeable future and let the future play out the way we thought it was going to. Um, obviously, the Chinese buyer also thought there was good opportunity there and decided to buy the company instead. So it always feels good when someone pays you for your shares at a higher price because you feel like, well, they're saying I was right. Now, whether that's true or not, remains to be seen how well the Chinese buyer uses Bellamy's to be successful. Um, I don't really have a national interest issue, generally speaking. Again, it's the ownership versus the control of the product. I don't really think it matters. We kind of feel a little bit, at some level, emotional about that, even if we pretend it's not emotive 
you know, buying our companies. You know, we don't complain when BHP buys a buys a Brazilian mine, but we care when someone tries to buy an Australian baby food maker. It's it's all it's all a little bit relative. And it's probably owes more to our emotions and and kind of political learnings than it does to rational economic fact. And in this particular case, I mean, all they're buying basically is a brand. Well, yeah, that's it. Because right. yeah. the yeah. milk yeah. even is not Australian. Now, <laughs> I will say at some level, what I do think is. And by the way, and again, this is where it's a little bit, and Chaz, I don't mean this about you at all, by the way, mate, but um, people do, they had the same issues with the Japanese in the 80s and 90s in Australia. Um, Doc, I don't know if you, you were around then in the country, but um, we had you know, Japanese buyers. They bought, you know, uh, Lion Nathan bought Tui's, right, at one point. And it was that sense of, you know, they're buying our beers. And now, look, in the meantime, has anything happened? Tui's beer is still pretty good. I drink Tui's old as it happens, and I'm, you know, <laughs> the beer is the same as it used to be, and I'm more than happy the price has gone up, but that's my, more tax than product. You know, has the country been harmed by it? Probably not. What I would say is I think we've got to be really thoughtful. If there is a political or a national angle, it's that we can, as a country, as investors, often undervalue stuff that other people with longer time horizons can can value, right? Now, when some of the overseas buyers are buying our stocks, it's because they, they realize that we're undervaluing them. Now, I can't blame them. If they want to pay a bit more for Bellamy's than the Australian market's paying for Bellamy's because they think it's worth more, uh, that's what private equity raters do all the time, right? That's exactly kind of part of their part of their shtick. Um, you know, if I'm frustrated by anything, it's the fact that we... we we can sometimes sell assets too cheaply because we'll take a 20% bump in the share price from, in Bellamy's case, a beaten down price. Um, they're getting a bargain, right? Because we don't value the full long-term potential, potential of those companies. So I, you know, that's my beef. He's not with the companies that are buying it or even with the government for letting it happen. My beef is with the, the Australian investors who undervalue these business or any any businesses and are letting other buyers they happen to be overseas buyers but they could equally be private equity buyers or or rich australians um they're letting you know other buyers buy them on the cheap because we don't necessarily understand the value should i get my high horse Oh, isn't it better to just answer some questions? <laughs> Let's do that, mate. So he, I, this is a, this is a big mea culpa from me, by the way. This is one I've got to I've got to apologize for. So remember, remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Howie and Howie's question that I said we'd already answered. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out Howie messaged me and said, "Guys, you didn't actually answer that question." <laughs> so either I'm wrong or Howie's wrong, and frankly, the chances of me being wrong are much higher than Howie being wrong. So I will apologize to Howie. Although Howie, if you've led me up the garden path, and we have answered this question already. Then I'm going to come for you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so, so, so how he basically hit me up on Instagram and said, "Hey, you said you'd answered this question. You haven't. So here it is. Hi, Scott and Doc. Absolutely love the podcast and listen to new and old ones daily. How we get a life? Get something else, mate. You need to do more. <laughs> I'm a keen member of Motley Fool Dividend Investor and Extreme Opportunities. Maybe that's why I didn't answer his question. Hmm. What's wrong with well, Share Advisor? How Come on, mate. I run Motley Fool Share Advisor. Doc runs EO. Ed Vesely runs Dividend Investor. You, you're backing those two blokes and not me. And you wonder why I didn't answer your question. Maybe that's why he's not you know, not subscribing. <laughs> now that you oh, answer. So you reckon he, oh, there you go. Now he will. So Howie's going to do the right thing and subscribe as yeah. soon as he hears his question. Good man, Howie. Thank you. Feel free to co- send me a copy of your receipt just, just so I know. He says, my question is about ETFs and if you should invest into multiple ETFs and LICs. Now, we've already talked about LICs. We've defined those terms, so that's good. Should you invest in multiple LICs some of which probably have the same companies within their portfolios, the same for ETFs. Also, if an LSE has a company within a portfolio, would you advise us to also buy this company's stock separately? For example, Treasury Wine Estates, which I, I own for full disclosure, which is already within the LSE's portfolio that I invest in. I'd appreciate your thoughts on this. Keep up the good work and capital letters full on. Good man, Howie, despite you not uh, 
subscribe to my service, I'll still answer your question because I'm a nice bloke. Yeah, I think you should answer this question because <laughs> then, oh, me. then he may subscribe. Yeah, but if he doesn't, then I've given him, I've, I've answered his question in good faith and he still hasn't subscribed. Exactly, yeah. So I think you should answer the question. My points do not count for this. <laughs> but he's a member of your service, mate. He probably, you probably owe him something. Yeah, but he's asking about treasury. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Clearly so, not asking about those extreme <laughs> ones. <laughs> we get this question actually from people, and, and this won't, you won't probably have any overlap stocks between EO and, and Dividend Investor Hoey, so you won't have faced this. But we do have, uh, we have multiple services at The Motley Fool, and we have members who are members of multiple services, some of which have the same stocks in them. And so they ask us all the time, hey, this stock's in both, what do I do? And this is the same kind of question. I... Particularly with ETFs and LICs, when it comes to considering portfolio allocations, you almost need to forget about the structure you own them in, right? So, yes, you own, let's say you own um, the ASX 300 ETF, just pick that number, right? You probably, as a, as a result, own 5% of your portfolio is probably in Commonwealth Bank. Now, if you have another assets outside that, that percentage drops as you go. If all you own is the, is the ETF, 5% of your money is in Commonwealth Bank. Now, if you own half, if half your portfolio is ETF and half is something else, then that means Commonwealth Bank drops to 2.5% of your overall portfolio. So rather than think about the ETF, which exactly is the question you're asking the right question, mate, you're saying, hey, shouldn't I consider the stocks within it? The answer is absolutely yes. But I wouldn't say that necessarily should exclude you from owning the stock separately. It's just a question of understanding clearly the way that money is allocated. So if you know that the ETF you own has 5% of its money in Commonwealth Bank, Consider that as you decide whether or not to add more money to Commonwealth Bank. If you want a 10% exposure, by all means, have your ETF and then add some Commonwealth Bank separately. You ask about Treasury Wine Estates, same thing. If you like Treasury Wine Estates and you want a greater exposure than the ETF gives you, then by all means, add some more. So think about think about the, the ETF as if you own those stocks yourself in proportion and then work out what an incremental or reduction, or it's not quite the same, but you, know, you get the idea, um, you want to have in, the, in that part of the portfolio. Now, if you own the ETF, you don't want that much exposure to Commonwealth Bank, go and buy other stuff to lower that weighting. So you don't have to be super, now, you don't have to be super, super um, strict about it. I'm not saying you should go through and compute all this stuff and work it all out and see if I want to get from five to five and a half percent of CBA or five to four and a half percent. And so you do X, Y, and Z. Um, I wouldn't at all go that way. What I think I would just do is say, right, if you are happy to have more treasury proportionally than the market has, then absolutely add some in your own portfolio. If you don't, then don't add any more and think about the two to combine when you're thinking about your total exposure to Treasury. I have to say for what it's worth though, when you talk about multiple ETFs and multiple LICs, that's where I don't know that you're adding a whole lot of value. So if you own AFIC and Argo, we talked about those in a previous podcast, they're kind of the same. Like They, they, they vary slightly, but I have think you'd have to ask yourself, why would I have both? Similarly with ETFs, if I've got a you know, an S&P 500 ETF plus a NASDAQ ETF plus a Vanguard rest of the world ETF, well, you've probably got Microsoft in all three. You've probably got Apple in all three. You've probably got Amazon in all three. Now, some you won't. Some, some are in the S&P and not in NASDAQ. Some are in NASDAQ, not the S&P. But you are kind of doubling up to some degree. And so as you build out, think about the way you want that portfolio to look. If you... Now, the diversification that comes is useful. So if you have NASDAQ plus the S&P 500, just to, to pick two, yeah, you'll double up on Microsoft, but you'll be getting on one, you get GE on the S&P 500, and you might get, I don't know what's in NASDAQ and not the S&P 500, Doc, you probably you probably tell me. Um, but you, you know, you're getting some mix. So I think to some degree, again, think about how they add to or reduce the amount of complexity and diversification on both sides, so that the good and the bad, in your portfolio, if the additional 
value, additional ownership value, uh, additional diversification value is worth it, then by all means do it. But I, so I wouldn't exclude owning ownership of individual companies if you want to expand them. I would think very seriously about whether you really need multiple ETFs or multiple LICs. They generally are doing versions of the same thing. Add to add LICs, add ETFs where they where they improve your portfolio in a in a particular way. If you want more. Uh, international exposure. You might add a rest of the world ETF just to get some European and, and British companies, for example. And yes, you might get some more American companies, but the trade-off might be worth it because you're getting more international exposure. If you want more tech in your portfolio, yeah, if you've already got an S&P 500 ETF, adding Microsoft twice, you know, is it double up? Yeah, but you actually want that because you want the extra tech of a NASDAQ ETF, for example. So in those circumstances, there are absolutely reasons where you want to add to that holding. Uh, so do it deliberately. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Do it absolutely if you want to. Just make sure you know what you're adding and what the impact is on your portfolio. All right, mate, is your member add something useful? I have nothing there to add. I mean, that's all covered. Dude, come on. But, um, it's all covered. You had one job. Howie, apologies for, mate, for making you wait for that answer. We hope, it's, uh, we hope we've done it justice. We hope the, the result is worth the wait. If it wasn't, uh, well, complain to Doc because he's your advisor. I, you don't know any of my services. All right, mate, should we move on? Let's do that. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Any question from Dale? Dale says, good afternoon. I've seen this in the afternoon. Good afternoon, Scott and Doc. Let me begin with what a wonderful, fantastic, remarkable, and whatever adjective the online thesaurus can give me about this great podcast. <laughs> Dale, I, I, I appreciate your efforts. And I appreciate the fact that at the end of the day, you just went, oh, and whatever other stuff you can come up with. And that's fine. You can, we, we don't mind that. That's okay. Um, thesaurus.com, uh, jump onto Google Docs or Microsoft Word. Jump, jump in the th- I'm sure you can Google synonym for fantastic or synonym for remarkable and get more. So, you know. I suggest using Bing. I don't think Bing knows what a synonym is, does it? Bing.com, really useful. <laughs> If you want an inferior search engine, feel free to do that. Um, he says, a question I have is this. What are the yeah, this is a good one? What are the common themes in recessions? What areas weather or even excel in depressed periods and stay conservative throughout? I have heard sin stocks sometimes have an uplift, not really my focus. However, companies such as Church and Dwight, this is better known maybe as Arm and Hammer, not only weathered the 2007-8 lows, they actually excelled due to their low-cost products and advertising in the recession. Is this an area that can be fruitful to a portfolio to help it through the storm? With kind regards, Dale. He also says, apologies if this is too much. Nothing is too much, Dale. You know why? Because I get to ask Dr. Hard questions. <laughs> so thank you for the question. And uh, watch me handball this because he, he gave me grief on the last question. Doc, this one's all yours, dude. Yeah, so one of the, you know, uh, one of the things I like to do when I think about a portfolio is um, what exposure does it have um, to say the local economy versus say, the global economy? And one of the advantages of thinking in that form is it helps um, to some extent at least balance out risks that um, say local economic slowdown might pose to your portfolio. So and it has a couple of other advantages. The big advantage being that if a company's market opportunity is only, say, Australia, uh, whereas another company's market opportunity is the whole world, mm. then by definition, the other company has effectively more opportunity, True. right? Um, so that's, I mean, that's one relatively straightforward way to 
um, get diversification and some benefits of, you know, um, removing the effects that a recession might have. Now, it's true some companies uh, perform better in in recessions. Like, I mean, one example might be that, uh, say, a company that deals with... Um, uh, with used cars, for example, you know, used cars might be more useful in in recession recession environment than say new cars. Mm. Um, another thing might be repairs and services for things like you know repairs for cars, services for cars, and so on. So companies that ex- are exposed to that might might do better in a in a recessionary sort of environment. They might even see some growth mm. because you know people, for example, don't change their vehicles that often. Instead, they just keep their vehicle longer. Um, those sort of things uh, can can help, you know. But my own preference is to sort of think about uh, diversification from a more of a global. Uh, point of view and if you do that mm. then you sort of balance it out now of course if there's a global recession then there's nowhere to hide um uh, but you know but that's you know that's sort of um in that in that case all equities basically suffer to one extent or the other mm. so um that's what i think i do I, again i think buying something i mean at a, at a higher level i think buying something just for the sake of portfolio protection is is another question i mean mm. uh, you if you really worry about uh recession then you might also think about hedging right i mean you know a lot of portfolio managers would hedge there are many different ways ways to hedge you can hedge via long instruments as i described or you can hedge via some sort of derivative instrument as well again all of these things fundamentally assume um, if you're doing active hedging or some other form of hedging, then you're assuming that you have some, you're assuming some sort of timing there. And no one could say, well, the economy is slow, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to go into sort of a recession, right? Mm. So um, in that sense, hedging could be expensive. So at a very high level, I try to find companies that have growth. If they have growth, then I'm happy with them. If the growth is diversified and global, that's even better. Um, yeah, and 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 you know, again, if if I feel that the company is too exposed to local economic headwinds, then of course, you know, um, an example might be you know, if people are not buying new cars, and you don't want to buy a, a company that is effectively leveraged to new car sales. Right. So, so that that could be something to avoid, for example. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, Dale, there's a good question to ask about what you actually want from your portfolio. And Doc's point about hedging, volatility, protection, all that kind of stuff is a really, really important one. And I, as I said in the last couple of podcasts, I, I really am continually mindful of different people have different objectives from their investing. You will almost certainly get a lower return from your portfolio if you're looking to minimize volatility because you're going to have to make different decisions. The, the simple reality is that there's a trade-off, there always has been and always will be, between volatility and returns. Now, there's, there's a thing called an annuity product, a retirement product, where you can basically trade in your cash for an income stream for the rest of your life. That income stream will be a lower return than you could get if you invested in dividend-paying stocks, for example, at least generally speaking. But it comes with a meaningfully uh, yeah, less volatility because you're just simply saying, well, uh, you know, I'll give you this lump of money, I'll get a paycheck every month, effectively a, a Quasi pension, they even call it a pension in some products. Um, it's one of those. It's one of those things where you just want to make sure that the results you're getting 
uh, what you actually want over the long term. If you're someone who does struggle with volatility, if you're freaking out about the chance of a, of a crash, then great question to ask. The flip side is, you know what, you know, to Doc's point about hedging, if you'd have had hedging insurance for the last 10 years while you waited for the next recession, you've cost yourself a small fortune and eventually when it does pay off, you probably still won't make back the money you would have lost in 10 years of insurance premiums that you paid, right? And so that's that's kind of the reality of this stuff. That's the way the markets tend to work is you're going to have to trade something off. I personally am not investing myself and largely they're not entirely for our services to avoid volatility. We don't want to take undue risk, so we're diversifying, but that's not to minimize the ups and downs. That's to minimize the chance that any one particular event or series of events permanently damages our capital. So I don't want to have overweighting in banks, for example, or retailers or mining companies or whatever, because I just don't think that's a smart thing to do for the long-term returns, not for short-term volatility protection. So I'm not criticizing you for doing so. Absolutely, if you want to have a look at that, Doc's given you a good list of stocks that um, you, you know, you can think about or different ways you can think about doing it. Just be mindful there's no free lunch here. And so if you're investing in lower volatility companies, we talked about Woolies a couple of weeks ago, they're really investing in that because they simply want that protection. But the current price and the current yield, the current PE, it's almost certain, I can't imagine a scenario in which Woolies beats the market over the next 10 years from the current price. So you are trading something off to do that. If you can get comfortable with volatility, that's my first preference because that's going to maximize your returns. If you can't, absolutely no harm in going for a lower volatility option. Just be mindful of the cost you're going to have to incur to do that. So do it by all means. I don't want to be a downer. Do it by all means if you want it. Uh, Just be mindful of the trade-off you're going to have to make. All right, my next question, Doc, comes from Fremo on, guess what? Insta. Yes. And Fremo's name is Matt. So Matt says, G'day, Scott and Doc. Just finished listening to the latest bonus mailbag. And I wanted to let you know that I agree with the other listeners who wish there was more of you guys each week. How good's that? I'm going to come and live in Matt's house for a couple of days. Just so he's got more. Scott, what do you reckon? Uh, I think you should do that. I think you'd love that. You'd love it. <laughs> it's very kind. Thank you, Matt. I've listened since the very beginning. And I actually started at the first episode. How good's that? Which I felt was still very relevant as you were only a few months in when, you, when I found you guys on my Don't Tell Doc iPhone podcast app. Matt, unfortunately, you've got that wrong, wrong, mate. Doc, Doc loves his iPhone, iPhone podcast apps. I'm much more a uh, an Android guy, so yeah, Doc's that, happy about that. I'm very happy with that. Anybody who uses iPhone is doing the right thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, he, he says, since then, I've told anyone who would listen about your service and your podcast. Thank you, mate. I've never actually asked a question, but that's because regularly questions are asked, that I have, sorry, are asked by others and answered either by yourself or Doc. The reason for my long-winded message, however, we're happy with that, especially when you're saying nice things, is to ask why you have not started advertising during your podcast. I, along with all other listeners, are eternally grateful for the free learning and knowledge you give us each week. However, I realize you're both giving up a lot of time for all of us. And as a businessman and investor, I thought it may well be something for you to think about as you become more and more popular. I listen to a few non-business financial podcasts as well as yours and the others all advertise to earn some kind of revenue during their weekly shows. Anyway, sorry for the long message and please keep up the great work. Cheers, Matt. What do you reckon, mate? Oh, great. Well, I mean, you know. You know what I love about this? People are listening to this right now going, hang on, they're slipping this one in on the last podcast of 2019. They're buttering us up for next year's advertising blitz that's about to start. <laughs> and I have to say, while I love that, I, maybe no one's thinking that, but I, I want to think someone is. Uh, that was a genuine question and not slipped in for any other reason. Uh, we have no we have no specific intentions of starting advertising, though um, the reality is that you know we do um, 
do this for, for nothing and that plenty of podcasts do advertise our US podcast, throw some ads in. Um, we hopefully will actually have, here is, here is a bit of, again, not intentional, but I've spoken to our techies and we're hoping to have some exclusive deals for our services for our listeners, Doc. So I don't know when, sometime next year probably, hopefully earlier rather than later, we'll actually be able to give our listeners some good prices to join Share Advisor Extreme Opportunities. So that was not an intentional ad and, and Matt doesn't work for us, I promise. Well, I don't think it's... Every time I'm at the works, I don't think it's him. Um, he, uh, he threw that question in and we appreciate it. We, we won't do over-the-top advertising, but if people are listening and they're not already members of our services, we might be able to get them some good prices. So there you go. That's some exciting news. That sounds very good. Mate, this has been a long one. I'm hoping that people are listening to this probably while they're watching the cricket, so hopefully we haven't taken too much of their time away from them. Hopefully they've enjoyed the last, how's this, the last regular podcast for 2019. That is pretty awesome. We are going to be back next year well kind of next year so we're going to be back of course but in the meantime I just wanted to remind people there is a there is a Money Hacks episode coming out so don't worry too much there is one more on the 31st of December to finish off the year but this is our last regular podcast for 2019 thank you very much to all of our listeners for taking the time uh, We look I mean we kind of joke about it but you know, if you're spending an hour or so with us a week, um, we really appreciate that. There's plenty of other things you could do. There are so many other podcasts you could be listening to. Don't. Ours is the best. But but there are. And uh, and we appreciate it. Hopefully, we're adding some value to you. But we don't take our listeners for granted at all. We genuinely love these mailbag episodes. We love the mailbag questions and comments because they really do give a sense of what you want to know about, what you want to hear about. I say this pretty regularly. Um, but super, super valuable to us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for spending the time. Thank you for those who actually have given us reviews and ratings. I laugh about it, but we, we very much appreciate both both the, the kind words and also the fact you take the time and effort to go to um, putting, that you put into to giving us some feedback and letting other people know about the podcast. We have an absolute ball doing it. Uh, Doc can't stand me, but I like, I like him, so that's okay. And uh, we, uh, we have a good time putting it together for you. So thank you very much for all of your support through 2019. We look forward to coming back to you next year with our regular schedule, more mailbag episodes, more regular podcasts, more money hacks, and there might even be a couple of interviews next year. So all, all coming together, all, all, being, all being put together, and, and that's the plan. But in the meantime, from both of us, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And of course, I have to give you the socials. So please do review, subscribe, Rate, let us know what you're thinking. Tell your friends. If you want to get in contact with us, the usual methods apply. But we did have someone on, on, if you could believe this, Doc, there was actually a review on iTunes. And someone said, great podcast, but I'm only giving it, I think it was three or four stars, because they don't tell me how to get in contact with them to ask questions for the mailbag. (laughs) Which I have to say, I thought I did more than enough. (laughs) And there are a whole lot of people yelling right now at their listening device saying, you do, stop doing it. But apparently some other people don't know. So... If you are so inclined, if you've been thinking about it for a while, if you have questions, comments, ideas, suggestions, other things, please let us know. You can get us on, what should we start with? Start with email this time. Info at fool.com.au. Nice, short and sweet. Info, I-N-F-O at fool.com.au. Our member services team, get that email. They will send it our way and we'll make sure we get your question or comment on the podcast. If you want to hit us up through the socials, Let's start with Twitter because Doc's on that one. At Anirban Mahanti is Doc's Twitter account. I'm at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Any or all of those. Hit us up, send us a direct message. I don't know if your DMs are open, Doc, but certainly mine are and The Motley Fool AU address is open. So direct messages, feel free to do that. Feel free to do it on our regular threads. Tag us on the tweet and we'll make sure we answer your question. You can get us on Instagram or at least myself and The Motley Fool's account. So at The Motley Fool AU. 
at TMF Scott P. That's our Instagram details. Or on Facebook, you can send us a direct message on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia, and I'm Scott Phillips Money. So now you know there's no excuse. Of course, one last URL. Leave us your email address. We'll send you some good stuff by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. That's it for this year's Motley Fool Money, at least our regular episodes. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Happy New Year and full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.